Welcome aboard Colorado Matters. From CPR News, I'm Ryan Warner. If you plan on flying this year, everything from the spaciousness of the seat to the ticket price to the pilot could be changing. Let's buckle up for a conversation with Blaine Nickerson from the news blog Airline Reporter. He's based in Denver. And hi, Blaine. Yeah, good morning. You're here to break down news from the airline industry that might affect Colorado flyers. And let's start actually with changes that will affect passengers even before they step on a plane. DIA is in for some big renovations. Tell us just briefly about them. Sure. I mean, Denver International Airport is reaching its sort of midlife crisis, right? It opened uh, in 95, but was designed far before that. And what uh, flyers will be seeing when they go out to the airport now is a lot of construction walls going up. Big changes are coming are that they're condensing the check-in counters. They don't have as much need for those in-person check-in counters and the paper tickets and all those kind of things. Right. It's often that I check in at a screen, not a person. That's right. Yeah, very rare that you you have to stand in an extra long line for the person. Uh, So they're condensing those check-in counters, and they're also going to be moving the security checkpoints up to that top level, the level six opening up level five or what would, would could have those giant check-in or excuse me um, security checkpoints now those will be turned into retail space gathering space after the security lines uh, airport, airports are really focused on trying to maximize that non-flying revenue yeah so having more than a cinnabon for instance absolutely airport, yeah and that means that the area under the tented roof that mm-hmm. kind of icon of DIA will actually be security side, correct? That's right. And and in a way, Denver was sort of created that way. It was after post 9-11 that we really had to change up the the heavy security infrastructure. Uh, The construction already beginning at DIA, do you think there will be much of an immediate impact to travelers? I think for the everyday uh, average traveler, I don't think they're going to see much of an impact. Okay. Uh, it, it's going to, for those of you that are frequent flyers, it's going to be a change, uh, but it's uh, it's going to be a long process out at Denver. They're also adding a number of gates onto each of the concourses as well. Indeed. So it is both changing and growing in yes. particular. Even before summer is over, I think people are starting to think about their fall and holiday travel plans. So how are ticket prices shaping up? I know a lot of that depends on the cost of fuel, which has to be sort of predicted by the airlines, you know? Yeah, I think the first thing I'd like to say is just to remind people that flying today is at an all-time cheap price. You look at it in adjusted terms, and, and flying is very affordable. And folks sort of forget that. They think uh, that they're paying you know outrageous amounts to fly. But it's pretty marvelous what you're able to, to do uh, with travel nowadays. Uh, oil prices are going up. Um, there were airlines that were sort of living the high life here with $45 a barrel oil. Uh, it's now up around $75, and that's really changing the way that airlines are going to um, provide amenities, offer different routes, uh, experiment a little bit with routes that, that maybe uh, were sort of marginal or on the edge. So I think that flyers should expect a steady march up of airline uh, airfare prices as we move towards the fall. And also continuing to pay for things uh, sort of on a buy-as-you-go basis, uh, everything from from seat assignments to baggage to, to other amenities on board. Right. I, I want to talk a little bit about that because it's not just that fares can be reflected in the price of a ticket. And in fact, it's often that airlines keep those low <laughs> and then start charging you for ancillary things. I heard recently from a friend who paid for water 
in the <laughs> cabin. Not the first glass, but if you wanted water additional to that, like a bottle, you had to pay for that. Have the airlines squeezed out of us all of the possible things they can in the cabin? I think it really depends on the carrier that you're flying. So you, you, today you have your full-service carriers, your Uniteds, and, and even to an extent Southwest, where a lot of those things, um, you know, water on board, snacks, are bundled in your fare. Uh, and then you've got your ultra-low-cost carriers, your Spirits and your Frontiers, where it really is their, their business model is to charge you for each and every standalone thing. And the argument that they make is that you're not paying for that if you don't need it. Mm. So if you remember to fill up your Nalgene bottle in the airport, you're not going to need to buy water on board. How are airlines extracting more from us in the cabins? I know part of that has to do with not just having business class and, you know, uh, general mm-hmm. seating, but to div- divvy up the, the cabin and charge more based on where you sit. It's becoming harder and harder to get a seat assignment ahead of time without paying some type of an extra fee for that, huh. especially as carriers have rolled out these sort of basic economy fares. Uh, seat assignment is becoming a luxury that people are having to pay for in advance, unless you're on Southwest, of course, and they still have their model of um, sort of the cattle call and everybody gets on and just picks a seat as they get on. Um, but but certainly we're seeing some stratification amongst the different classes on board. We've got your business class. Um, carriers are moving towards a new true premium economy model. And that's uh, sort of the equivalent of a domestic first class seat, if you think about it. A little bit wider, a little bit more leg room, and maybe a little bit of an extra feature um, as you're being served on board. Uh, and then all the way back to basic economy, really not having a scene assignment, being stuck in the back of the plane, uh, surely near a bathroom, uh-huh. <laughs> and, and, you know, for good measure, screaming children on both sides. Uh-huh. I have a friend who jokes that that should be called no class. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, we'll get to seat assignments and seat sizes in particular in just a moment. Uh, but I want to talk about Frontier Airlines mm-hmm. based in Colorado, one of those ultra low cost carriers. Its pilots have been threatening to strike for quite a while now, citing bad pay, among other concerns. Just last week, they sued the airline. Pilots hope to force the carrier to negotiate a new contract. Briefly, give us some background here. How long has this been going on? So it's been going on for a number of years. Uh, Frontier Pilots are really the last um, airline pilot association that is operating on a a bankruptcy era type of contract. So it's been going on for a number of years. Um, they've been bargaining for, I think, at least two years now, and recently were given permission to be able to strike, which is which is a bit of a hurdle to cross for pilots in general. Frontier pilots say that they're paid about 40% less than their peers in the industry and um, are, are asking for some of the concessions they made during those bankruptcy contracts to be able to put back in place and get them on an equal playing field with uh, some of their peers in the U.S. It's worth noting that Frontier is at the bottom of the pack when it comes to customer satisfaction. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the airline is quite profitable. Yes. Those things might seem contradictory, but it seems that passengers have a masochistic streak if the price is low. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Everybody um, likes to say that, you know, in sort of that altruistic feeling that I'm going to, uh, I'm going to be just fine buying the cheapest fare, or I'm going to spend a little bit more for a quality experience or a quality product on board until they go to book the fare. And they say, I can, I can, you know, take that 6 a.m. flight. I can, I can um, suffer through a middle seat for that flight. Do you expect a strike? From the Frontier pilots? You know, Frontier, when they uh, filed suit uh, last week, they were really arguing and trying to um, make the case that the airline itself is not um, bargaining in good faith. 
that they're trying to force them into good faith bargaining. Honestly, uh, Frontier Pilots have put a lot of pressure on the airline. For those of you around Denver that have seen the billboards yes, up indeed. over the last year, they've got a mobile RV strike center going around. And they haven't been getting a lot of attention from the airline. I would not be surprised to see Frontier Airlines pilots strike in the near future. That would future. not come as a surprise to you. Yeah. Just briefly about seats. Frontier does have the widest seats in economy. I did not know this. At 19.1 inches across. Other airlines like United and American tend to squeeze more seats into their planes. Uh, the large 777s used by United and American have 10 abreast mm-hmm. in economy. Uh, but Delta has just announced its 777s will have just nine abreast, allowing for wider seats. Are are we seeing this squeezed seat trend fading, do you think? No. No, no I okay. don't think so at all. Um, some of the premium carriers, premium international carriers, um, such as Cathay Pacific um, from Hong Kong, are doing similar kinds of things. I think that Delta believes that their nine abreast economy is going to be a competitive um, feature for them. Mm -hmm. And I'll refer back to our conversation about two minutes ago about uh, passengers booking flights based on price, not uh, based on amenities once they're on board. I do not expect Delta to stick with the nine abreast economy. Oh. Um, I just don't think in the competitive landscape against United and American um, or international carriers that they can afford to do so. Okay, leave us with this brief consumer advice. Should I buy my tickets for the holidays now or should I game it out and wait a bit? I am currently looking to buy tickets for my holiday travels right now okay. and, and will probably do so in the next couple of weeks. So if that gives you any type of a hint about where my thinking is, um, you know, I think we're going to see a continued upward pressure on oil prices. I think that that's going to uh, push carriers to have to respond with fair increases. Lock it in. Yes. Thanks so much for being there. Absolutely. Blaine Nickerson is editor of Airline Reporter. He's based in Denver. And we realize you have many public radio programs to choose from. So thanks for being with Colorado Matters, which continues after this on Colorado Public Radio. You're about to hear a snippet from an NFL championship game. The year is 1967, and it's famously known as the Ice Bowl because the wind chill reached 48 degrees below zero. Meredith will throw. Nothing over the middle. Don looks at the outside. He spots Frank Clark, who gathers it in for a clutch catch and first down yardage at the Dallas 41, 645 left in the game. Frank Clark, a wide receiver for the Dallas Cowboys at the Ice Bowl, was also the first African-American varsity football player at CU Boulder. He was with the Buffs in 1955 and 56, and he was inducted into the CU Athletics Hall of Fame in 2008. Clark died last week. To learn about his time as a Buff, we reached out to one of his CU teammates, former NFL player John Wooten, who happened to be CU's second African-American player, Both Clark and Wooten joined the team at a tumultuous time for race relations in America, but Wooten says the team and the school welcomed them. And that's one of the things that I truly love about Colorado. We just had a great time as students there at Colorado. We didn't have one single problem there on campus. But he adds that racism did come from other teams and that his fellow buffs were quick to defend their teammates. But we did have situations when we went to Utah and hotel there, they 
didn't want Frank and I to stay in the hotel. Their ward had to step up, said, no, you know, we're not going to do that. They're not going to go stay somewhere else. So we were aware of those situations. Fortunate for us, Dean Carlson, the university, dealt with them the way it should have been dealt. We never yield to them. We stayed with the team. Frank Clark was a key player for the Buffs in 1956. Wooten says he was the reason CU got to play in the Orange Bowl against Clemson. In 1956, at Missouri, Frank made the two plays that put us in the 57 Orange Bowl. Number one, he blocked the punt, and then in addition to that, he caught a touchdown pass. Wooten says he and Clark were two of maybe 10 black students on the CU campus. But that didn't stop Clark from becoming one of the most popular students there. At Colorado, they have, in the spring, they have a big festival of what they call CU Days. And the students select a king and queen of CU Days. Frank Clark was chosen by the student body, the king of CU Days. After college, both Wooten and Clark ended up in Texas and kept in touch. He would still call me, and he would just go on and on about what happened at, up in Colorado. Think about that. He would call me, and he would talk about what went on in Colorado. That is former NFL player John Wooten remembering his friend and former teammate Frank Clark, who died last week at age 84. Clark was the first African-American football player at CU Boulder. Wooten was the second. With drought and wildfire blanketing the West, you might think shutting off the fountains at the Bellagio in Vegas or ripping out all the grass in Arizona would make a dent in the West's water problems. Think again, says David Owen. He traveled the Colorado River end-to-end, past farms and dams, power plants and cities. Owen's latest book is Where the Water Goes, Life and Death Along the Colorado River. David, welcome to the program. Thank you. I want to clarify that you did this by road, not by boat. Right. I was not... I got wet only when I stuck my hand into the river. Okay, a series of rental cars here. Uh, what did you expect to see along the river? Uh, what I was hoping to see is, is just where the water comes from in the river and where it goes. The Colorado is perfect for that kind of uh, experiment because you know it's long. It's 1,400 miles long, but it's, uh, it's not endless. It's the Mississippi's 1,000 miles longer, and uh, it, uh, every couple of weeks it carries as much water as the Colorado does an entire year. Oh, wow. Uh, and yet the Colorado is extraordinarily important to a huge part of the country. Almost 40 million people uh, depend on water from it, 6 million acres of agriculture. Uh, and that irrigated agriculture is on uh, uh, on land that was created by the Colorado it, itself. Uh, uh, Arizona and Southern California farming takes place on on soil that's that's pretty much what's missing from the Grand Canyon. The the river spread it around, and, and now we grow stuff on it. And, of course, the Colorado River is not just uh, ours. It's Mexico's as well. Right. There was some, there was some uh, dispute about that. The United States didn't initially think that Mexico necessarily deserved any of the Colorado, even though it flows through uh, Mexico. It, 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 the other interesting thing about the Colorado is that it doesn't get all the way to the end anymore. Uh, not very far over the, Mex- the, the Mexican border, it just... It, 
it comes to an end. And the reason is that we use it all up. An- another reason that, that studying the Colorado is interesting because you can, you can account for pretty much every drop of water that is in it to start with. That's right. And so there's actually a lot of what you call paper water. That is water in theory mm-hmm. that people don't actually have access to. I love that term, paper water. Yeah, the West is the West is unusual. The the entire legal structure about water is different from what it is in the rest of the country and in the world, and uh, there are more legal claims on water in the Colorado River, the paper water, uh, than there is wet water, which is what you and I think of as water. So there have been some. Uh, amazingly complex legal battles, uh, including one of the longest uh, Supreme Court cases ever that have to do with uh, disputes between states over who gets what. That's right. One revelation you have along this journey was about palm trees in Los Angeles. This is, I think, where your son lives. Yes, it is. Uh, He lives in LA. And I'm I'm ashamed of myself for never thinking about this, but it was as I was driving to Los Angeles, uh, sort of at the end of my journey from Mexico, and I realized that, you know, I've always thought that I have friends in L.A. and You make a gin and tonic, you walk out into your yard and you pluck a lime from your lime tree and you have these beautiful flowers and there are palm trees uh, along your driveway. And I realized that none of that stuff was there. That's, that's all, those are all the products of irrigation uh, in the early years. L.A. was a desert. In the early years, they took uh, irrigation water from the Los Angeles River and, and they pumped it from the ground until that went dry. But a lot of that water comes from the Colorado River. So... A few years ago, my I have a photograph of my wife and me standing on uh, an Independence Pass uh, with the the snow behind us, and um, you know that some of that snow was on its way to Mexico and on its way to Southern California. Uh, and I suppose that there is a knee jerk reaction people have, which is to say, "Oh, just pull out the palm trees and and you know again stop the fountains at the Bellagio, and you'll be set. The Colorado will have enough river water. Why isn't it?" that easy. Well, hey, you know, we could each anybody can think of the one thing, you know, just stop growing almonds or if you live if you live uh, on the west slope, all you have to do is get rid of all the cities on the east slope in Colorado, just get rid of Denver right. and, and Boulder. I think there's been a lot of attention to growing hay in places that you know eventually get shipped to China. Right, exactly. The irrigation water that we're shipping actually shipping this water embedded uh, in it. But as with all these things, it's always ends up being more complicated than it than it seems when you look at it from the surface. There are people People who live in uh, Boulder and Denver don't necessarily want to uh, pack up and move someplace else. Uh, we uh, we ha- do a significant trade in uh, in agricultural products with other countries and forage forage crops are some of those. Uh, the the Bellagio fountains in Las Vegas don't actually use that much water, none of it from the Colorado River, and yet it's a huge source of economic vitality uh, for Las Vegas. So how you feel about that depends on how you feel about the economic vitality of Las Vegas. But but all these all these issues are complex. Yeah, and a lot of them are about quality of life. You heard from the head of Denver Water that you know, trees in town are an important part of the quality of life here. Yes, it's true. And if you if you drive a little ways to the east uh, outside of Denver, you see what Denver would look like without irrigation water. Uh, the grass, the it's not just the golf courses, the grass, the trees, the, they all depend on water that has been brought either from underground or from other places. Yeah, I think of what the state historian Patty Limerick has said, which is that everyone here or most everyone here is from somewhere else. 
And they often came from the East Coast where they were used to green lawns and, uh, and leafy canopies. And they brought those sentiments with them. They did. And it also, you know, it makes a difference. It, 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 you, in, I was remember being in Las Vegas and walking onto the campus of the University of Nevada at Las Vegas and just stepping off the sidewalk into the quadrangle, which was a, a broad lawn with big trees. The temperature dropped, you know, it was 20 degrees. It felt like a completely different place. And it was. It was a different uh, microclimate. And if... If there were still, you know, sand blowing around in the the streets of Denver, it wouldn't necessarily feel like the Denver that it feels like today. These current water shortages are, I think, easiest to see when you visit Lakes Powell and Mead, these two giant reservoirs that are like savings accounts for the states along the Colorado River Basin. Uh, Certainly, you read before this trip about their depletion, but what was it like to actually visit? Lake Mead and Hoover Dam are two of my favorite places in the world. Uh, And when my... Uh, daughter graduated from college and my son graduated from high school. Uh, my wife and I took them on a trip to the West. It was the last big family trip and we rented an RV in Las Vegas. And the first stop was Hoover Dam, which I've always loved. And there, my son took a picture of me standing sort of slack-jawed in front of a diorama of the construction of Hoover Dam. <laughs> and I, I learned later that my wife was whispering to my daughter, don't worry, it won't all be like this. Uh, but it's a, it's an amazing uh, engineering feat. And, and the lake is a, extraordinarily beautiful, even in its current condition, which is... Yeah, describe that for us at Lake Mead. It's uh, Lake Mead is missing more than half of its water at the, at the moment. It's down to about 38% of what it contained at the turn of the millennium. And you can see this very vividly because there's a big white stripe that runs around the edge of it, the, the famous the bathtub, bathtub ring. ring. Yes, right. exactly. Yeah, I just flew over it. And it is, you, it's, it's clear from the air as well. It's in, in many ways, it's even more chilling to look at the back of Hoover Dam because you can see so much of it. Uh, you can see the huge towers that are the intake towers that, or the outlet towers that draw water from the lake and run it through the power plants on the other side. And uh, they used to just be the tops of them sticking above the surface of the water. And now you feel as though you're looking down into the depths. It's interesting that you call these some of your favorite places because there are plenty of environmentalists, for instance, who see Hoover Dam and who see these reservoirs as, you know, huge mistakes in our history. You have to, you know, you, I think it's it's impossible not to have mixed feelings about them. You know, Hoover Dam was one of the most remarkable construction projects ever. In 1930 uh, it was when construction began. The construction of the Empire State Building began at the same time. Nobody knew how to build something as big as either of those things. Uh, the country, people were out of jobs. People came from all across the country to work on them. They worked for nothing and in these extraordinarily dangerous jobs to build that, that dam. Uh, amazingly, it, or it was interesting to me that the demand for Hoover Dam came not from uh, from people who wanted to store water, but from people who wanted to stop the river from uh, from uh, inundating their farm fields. So it was farmers downstream in Southern California who wanted some uh, wanted a hand on the faucet of the Colorado River. Uh, since then, the, we've it's it's main use now is as a stockpile of water for those same. For those same regions, and to generate hydroelectricity, and, and to generate yeah. much of which goes to move water from one place to another. Oh, interesting! Right, it's a sort of self-supporting system in that way. Um, so, at Lake Mead near Las Vegas, you met some people who own marinas to cater to tourists, and I was interested to read that they feel like there's been apocalyptic reporting. That's a quote about the Colorado River, and uh, that it may be hurting their business. 
People expect to see a thimble of water at at Lake Mead. (laughs) You know, as they said, there's still a lot of water in this lake, and and it's true. But you can't see it without you can't see the lake without being without feeling concerned. And one of the marina owners was interesting because his he'd had to move his marina; it had been there forever uh, because the the place where it had formerly been anchored was now shoreline. Uh, Right, it was more beach than marina. Yes, it Uh was. Uh, in Colorado, much of the water that feeds the Front Range comes from west of the Continental Divide. And uh, for Denver, most of it's stored in Dillon Reservoir near Silverthorn, not far from Keystone. Your description of how that reservoir was built about 50 years ago was really vivid. So I wonder if you could just read a bit of that for us. Uh, sure. This is about the tunnel that brings the, the water uh, under the Continental Divide. It's 10 feet in diameter and uh, 23 miles long. Uh, Digging it took six years, during which mining crews worked on it continuously, sometimes in 12-hour shifts, and mainly used pickaxes, jackhammers, and dynamite. They dug in four directions at once, from both ends toward the center, and from the center toward both ends. The crews working from the center reached their starting point under the town of Montezuma by descending a thousand-foot vertical shaft, which they had to dig first. Uh, that tunnel, incidentally, is, is one of many structures in water moving, uh, water moving pieces of infrastructure in the West is named after a lawyer because uh, uh, very often the, the key person in a water project was the lawyer who figured out a way to, to pull it off. Who is that lawyer? His name was Harold, Harold D. Roberts. He established uh, D- Denver's right to, to that water. Dillon Reservoir is looked at very differently um, if you live on the west side of the divide and the east yes. side of the divide, what does it represent to people who are on the western side of the Rockies? People on the western side view it as theft by uh, by people on the east. Um, they, you still people will shake their fists and, and feel angry about it. Um, the at the same time, though, those same people depend very heavily on people who live on the east side of the mountains. Uh, and would be very unhappy if the people who lived on the east side of the mountains, uh, you know, packed up and moved to moved to the west and said, "Well, you know, where do you want to where do you want to put us, uh, so that we don't have to move our water over the mountains?" It's uh, uh, like many relationships involving water; it's a complicated one. Uh, if you're if you're in the Grand Valley growing peaches or growing grapes, uh, you depend. You're not so much making um, your living from what you're growing as you are from the people coming from east of the mountains to to visit, to ride bikes, to visit the restaurants, to drink wine in your in your uh, in your tasting room. Right, that's your customer base in many respects. Yes, exactly. Right now, Utah is trying to get approval for a new pipeline to take more water from the Colorado River. It's entitled to that water per the Interstate Compact, but it would still be another draw on a river, as you've mentioned, that's already over-allocated, that paper water idea again. Where does that Utah thing stand, and, and how much of an impact would it have? It's uh, The Utah project, which is the, the, to draw water from, the, from Lake Powell and take it, uh, take it, take it north into Utah, uh, it's been underway for a while. It, it, the stage it's at now is securing federal approval to do it. Uh, it's a good example of what of the dilemma that that the West faces. Utah has a right by the agreement of 1922, when this when the seven uh, Colorado River states divided up the river, Utah has a right to more water than it currently takes. Uh, but the challenge is that the there isn't enough water to satisfy. If everybody who took, if every state took all the water they're entitled to by that agreement, uh, the 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 river couldn't handle it. Um, so something has to give at some point and. 
uh, it's difficult because a state can say, "Look, here I have uh, I have this piece of paper that says I'm I'm entitled to this to this water," and yet at the same time, uh, you have dangerously low reservoirs uh, down farther downstream. You touch on a lot of environmental issues. What stands out about water to you as an environmental issue today? What I think the what the main thing that about water is that water is never just about water. Uh, it's part of a whole complex of issues that have to do with uh, governance, that have to do with climate, that have to do with uh, urban development. Uh, one of the big challenges is that as we get better at using water, uh, it's what we do with the water that we save. And sometimes if a community becomes uh, – uses less water as many, many co- communities have been able to do, yeah. if we just take that water and invest it in the construction of new sprawling communities – uh, new subdivisions, uh, we may have we've we've solved the water problem in one way because we're getting more value from every gallon of water that we use, but we've created a different environmental problem, and there isn't really it, it, there isn't any really any way for people like for example urban planners and water managers to work together toward uh, coming up toward handling land use in a way that that makes sense in both directions. This is one of the most fascinating things, I think, in your book, which is what you call the the perverse effects or the potentially perverse effects of saving water. And you liken it to saving up for a trip. So you, I don't know, you're you're, you're very um, uh, conscious about not spending and and then you have enough money to fly to Vegas (laughs) and you wind up spending way more money than you would because you're gambling and you're eating and you're you're sort of... (laughs) Uh, living past your means. And so what was the value of saving because you've actually spent more than you have and that there are parallels to water conservation? There are. And there, the, very often water that's wasted in, in the view of, you know, say, water to, excess water that's flood irrigated onto an agricultural field. Uh, often that wa- excess water has uh, has environmental value. Maybe it soaks into the ground and replenishes a, 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 an aquifer that supports a surface stream. Or in the case of uh, the, the, a canal that carries water from the Colorado River to Southern California, uh, water leaking from that canal supported a, an ecosystem and a, and a farming area in northern Mexico that then had water troubles is when the United States lined part of that canal with concrete and the leaking stopped. Huh. Uh, with any efficiency issue, uh, this, inv- this is true of energy too, uh, the, the, the real impact of gains in efficiency depends on what you do with what you save. And so the, the example that I give in the book had to do with my wife and me when, uh, when home heating oil got to be almost $5 a gallon where I live. Uh, my wife and I got very good at uh, turning off lights. I, uh, I, I completed insulation projects in, my, in our, our house, which is 200 years old, that I'd been meaning to do for 20 years. Uh, you know, I drove less. I did all these things. And we saved a significant amount of money, which, uh, as you mentioned, we then spent on a trip to Europe. So what we had really done was uh, transmute natural gas into jet fuel. And if huh. – and if. If that's all you do, then you haven't you haven't really advanced. You feel as though you've been busy solving an environmental problem, and you've really just been shifting money from one pocket to the other. And so often in the water conversation, agriculture in particular is villainized um, because of its intensive water use, 
And yet, uh, again, the picture is not so simple. Right. Yeah, we eat. Um, it's definitely true that the uh, uh, 80% of the water in the Colorado Basin goes to agriculture. Denver, uh, the, the head of Denver Water estimated to me that Denver uses maybe 2% of the water in Colorado. Mm-hmm. So when people you know, look at, look at ways to save, it inevitably the focus falls on agriculture. And yet, you know, if, if, you, if you eat if you eat your greens during the winter, you're eating uh, lettuce and onions and other fruits and vegetables that uh, come from uh, very uh, almost inevitably from farmland that's irrigated with Colorado River water from from Southern California, from Northern Mexico. Uh, it, it's all a it's all a big web of of in, interrelationships, uh, and then communities that depend on those on those the people who are growing those crops. It's not just us. Uh, eating or not eating our salad. It's uh, it's all these other relationships that that uh, among different communities in different states. Uh, David Owen, we mentioned two nations that are along the Colorado River, so the United States and Mexico. But we really ought to talk about Indian nations as well, because if you if you truly were talking about like prior appropriation and who had first rights, um, my they would lay claim wouldn't they yes and uh, the when the when the seven states divided up the river they only barely mentioned mexico and they only barely mentioned the tribes uh, the supreme court had had actually ruled in the early part of the 20th century that uh, in effect that the united states would not have moved uh, indian tribes onto reservations if they had not intended for them to be able to uh, execute this new lifestyle, new agri- agricultural lifestyle that they were supposed to support themselves by. And so the the tribes in the West have theoretical rights to a huge amount of water. Mm-hmm. Their claims on the water precedes uh, any of the, the priority claims uh, of of the states that divide it up, but are theoretical rights rights? What I mean, that's there's, an important. There's a lot. Of, there's, it's even this is even flimsier paper water than some of the other paper water because in order to get that, in order to make use of that water, they would need the kinds of infrastructure projects that, you know, things like Hoover Dam, like uh, uh, like Parker Dam, like the big diversions, and uh, those not only don't happen anymore, but through history, they the federal government has not has not engaged in projects like that for the benefit of the of Native Americans. Do you have some sense that Indian nations might be the solution to some of the water issues that the states are facing? Uh, I don't know if it would be the solution. They, they, they may be the conclusion to some of the some of the issues that they're saying. In Arizona, for example, the uh, tri, uh, Indian reservations in Arizona have a claim on a huge amount of Arizona's full allotment of Colorado River water. Uh, the one thing that uh, tribes have done is because of the difficulty of getting that wet water is to uh, basically settle uh, for, for, for something else, to settle for less than, than, than they might have gotten if they pursued their full legal right in the courts. But these are all this stuff is still being worked out. Mm. Uh, the, the, uh, it, and it's, it's fascinating. It's it's there's it's a it's a huge overhanging claim on on water that that we increasingly understand isn't really that there isn't really as much of as we thought there was at one point. We're speaking with David Owen. His new book is Where the Water Goes: Life and Death Along the Colorado River. When President Trump was a candidate, you talked with him about water issues in the West. We what, did. What were his thoughts? We we did. Well, we 
Trump and I actually played golf together uh, about five years ago, and we talked about water because we were talking about water on some of the golf courses he owns. And uh, and I was writing about water, so I asked him I asked him some questions about it. And he said he said you know the solution for California, all they have to do is they have to you know uh, pipe it down from the north. They got nothing but water up there. And I said, well, it would have to be a big pipe. And he said, well, it wouldn't have to be all that big. They've got they've got all this water. Uh, and then he said, or there's that thing, there's that thing with the oceans. Uh, what's that? I said, oh, desalination. He said, yeah, desalination. He said, which gets expensive, by the way. There, California sits next to an enormous body of water, you know, and nary a drop to drink. But w- what's the status of of desal? Uh, it's desal is tough because it's it is expensive. Uh, the energy reason, intensive, isn't it? Energy intensive. You have to you have to force water to do something, salt water to do something that it does not want to do, which is to you have to. F- push it through a filter that's fine enough to catch the salt, which is dissolved in it. So it has to, it takes energy to do that. Uh, San Diego has a new uh, ocean to freshwater desal plant. Uh, before that, the only one in the United States was in Tampa, Florida. And uh, the, 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 the example of the Tampa uh, facility, which I took a tour of a number of years ago, is instructive because they had to shut it down almost immediately because they clogged up the the membranes, the reverse osmosis membranes, with with just stuff that was in the water that they were pumping through it, and uh, they had to rebuild everything, and they had to completely change their and and it, which they eventually did, but it still produces a pretty small amount of water, mm. uh, and it's more expensive to produce than others. So there are pl- parts of the world, Dubai gets all its water from desal, Israel gets a huge amount of uh, its water from desal, uh, but it's. It's t- it's no it's nobody's first choice, and it's also it's a it's an energy consuming activity that we don't engage in to a large extent already, which means that it it sort of pushes in the opposite direction from efforts to uh, to create renewable energy sources. It's it just it's it pushes the finish line a little farther ahead because it increases total consumption. You're saying, are there other parts of the world in worse shape than the Western United States? Can we can we take some comfort by looking elsewhere? We definitely can. And in, in, in the United States, we were as we are in so many ways. We're we are rich in resources, including water resources, even in the West. I mean, uh, you point to Syria, actually, don't you? Syria, yes. And the, you know, there's a case that can be made that the 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 civil war in Syria was precipitated by a water shortage. Yeah, how so? Uh, the agriculture in Syria had drained the aqua- aquifer that supported it. That prompted a major migration from the agricultural areas to the city. You have lots of angry, unemployed young men, which is always a recipe for trouble. And so I don't know that you would say that it caused uh, the Civil War, but it was definitely a, a contributing factor. And in fact, if you look at look through history, uh, uh, resource conflicts lie at or near the heart of many of the major conflicts around the world. Uh, it's the, it's, and they're be becoming more fraught as the population of the world grows and as we become more accustomed to living the way we're, we're happy to live, uh, all those pressures increase. Thanks so much for sharing your reporting with us. Oh, thank you. David Owen speaking with us in April of last year about his book, Where the Water Goes, Life and Death Along the Colorado River. Owen's been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 1991. You can read an excerpt of Where the Water Goes at CPR.org. We are working on a story for tomorrow, and we'd love your input. It's about kids and smartphones. 
What does the research say about screen time and the right age to introduce a child to this kind of technology? So parents, what questions do you have? And what choices have you made in your own home? What limits have you set? Email news at CPR.org. Please include your first and last name and where you live. Again, the email address is news at CPR.org. Red Rocks Amphitheater is Colorado's most famous music venue. And now music fans can add a piece of its history to their record collection. And I mean record literally. The new Red Rocks live album features 20 standout performances on vinyl. The recordings span four decades. This is Cleopatra from Denver band The Lumineers, and here to tell us the stories behind these live tracks, from the Grateful Dead to you 2 is Brian Kitts of Denver Arts and Venues. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. Glad to be here. Why don't we get to the earliest recording on this compilation? It turns out it's not The Lumineers, it's The Grateful Dead with a 1978 performance of Ship of Fools. Still might born a few This band pioneered long instrumental jams in their live shows, the huge cult following. How does Red Rocks factor into the Dead story? You know, I think the important thing about the Dead is that, like you said, they really started a trend. And uh, when you look at the jam bands that are so popular at Red Rocks today, um, you know, you see the Dead being one of the top ten performing or performers who's ever you know played at the venue. Huh. But then, you know, they and uh, you know guys from the band turn into other bands, and so you've got uh, String Cheese in its incident and Widespread Panic. Both of those are featured on the album, and you know somebody like Widespread now holds the record uh, for the most times having played at Red Rocks. Wait, They're, this String Cheese incident is the band that has played Red Rocks the most? No, Widespread Panic. Widespread Panic. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. Listen yep. carefully, Ryan. Widespread is sneaking up on uh, 60 performances, it, but, you know, some of that starts with the dead in that style of music. Ah. I suppose that there are bands that could play other venues, because Red Rocks, comparatively, is not the size of a stadium, sure. for instance, but who still decide to play Red Rocks because of its iconic nature. Sure. I think you look at uh, bands, again, like Widespread, who, you know, can do three nights every year, and sell those out. You know, they could probably do other venues in the area, but Red Rocks is special. It's beautiful. Uh, the sound is unmatched. You know, that red sandstone absorbs sound as opposed to bouncing it around the way that a concrete venue will do. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So the geologic are, features there absorb sound. Yeah. And so the bowl shape, uh, you know, surrounded by that red sandstone makes it acoustically perfect. And so there are bands who come back year after year who actually like the way they sound there, not just because it's it's a really pretty venue. Huh. 
Speaking of bands making return trips to Red Rocks, there are a couple of artists here who just played sold-out shows. Imagine Dragons, Paramore among them. Those two bands have recordings from four or five years ago on this new collection. Huge names in the music industry now, not necessarily the case back then. With Red Rocks hosting, gosh, what, about 100 performances a year, I think. How the heck do you go about winnowing down these tracks? You know, we'll do about 150 shows this year. That's up from about 78, uh, seven years ago. And, you know, this is an interesting process. There have been over 2,000 concerts at Red Rocks in its history. And so, A, you choose, the is there audio available? B, is the audio... Right, was it recorded? Yeah. And B, is the audio any good? Can you clean it up or does it already sound good enough? And then the third is, will the artist actually let you have that for the album? And, you know, this album was supposed to be done in time for the for the venue's 75th anniversary. We wanted to wait and kept waiting to see whether or not U2 was going to give us New Year's Day, and eventually they did. So one of those iconic tracks that sneaks on here because the sound was good, it's iconic, and they finally said yes. Okay, well, we have to hear the New Year's Day track from U2. What is the story behind this track, Live at Red Rocks? The U2 track? Yeah. You know, it's uh, it's important to the venue. It's the first time that I think worldwide audiences really got a look at Red Rocks. When uh, U2 released uh, the video for Under a Blood Red Sky, you know, 1982-83 is right when U2 is getting going. And it's rainy, it's misty, and the rocks just look beautiful. Um, but locals knew that but until you get to see it you know on video it's you know it really kind of put red rocks on the map worldwide i own a record player i actually use it quite often i am curious as to why you decided to release these live tracks from red rocks on vinyl and i think exclusively on vinyl you actually can download them but okay we, you know the vinyl was important to us first it's uh there's a cool factor to vinyl now um, you know, I think for anybody who's been collecting or really collects records, uh, the pops and hisses actually sound kind of cool. And I think that when you're looking at a, a historical album like this, you know, these tracks actually sound a little f- more fun when, you know, when it doesn't sound so pristine. Analog is cool again. Yeah, I think we're absolutely. surrounded. We're bombarded by digital. Yep. Okay, let's play my favorite track. This is Florence and the Machine with Dog Days Are Over from 2015. Well, you got a you got a remix there. You got a little Florence <laughs> and a little U two mashup. You know what I appreciate about Florence and the Machine is how good her voice is live. You know, it's so refreshing to hear some of these artists outside of a studio and know they can actually sing. 
without auto-tune. Yep. And I think that's one of the things you really get on this particular album, whether it's Florence, whether it's Sharon Jones, whether it's Bono. You know, every single one of these tracks, uh, I think, is a testament to the, the live experience. Colorado music has a strong presence on this compilation. The Lumineers, we heard in the introduction, as well as uh, String Cheese Incident, The Fray. How has local music factored into Red Rock's programming over the years? Like, is there a mandate that you make a certain amount of space for Colorado artists at this Colorado venue? There's not a mandate, but I think that there is, you know, the heart and soul of what happens at Red Rock starts with local bands. Uh, you know, local fans know local music. And so, you know, I think one of the really special things about the venue is that whether it's film on the rocks or as openers, uh, sometimes you're going to see those bands. And then, you know, a couple of years later, somebody like the Lumineers or uh, One Republic just explodes globally. And, you know, I think there's a real sense of pride in Denver's music scene uh, about what uh, what those bands bring, not just to the city, but what uh, the combination of Red Rocks and those bands can do. Is Red Rocks as accessible to Colorado acts as it should be? Could it be more? Um, you know, it's a good question. I think that, you know, the business behind Red Rocks means that uh, the promoters book whoever they want. And so I think that our partners at Live Nation and AEG and the Colorado Symphony do what they can to promote local music. Thanks for being with us. He's Brian Kitts with Denver Arts and Venues talking about the new Red Rocks Live vinyl compilation. And we'll leave you with the Colorado band The Fray and how to save a life from a 2012 show. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The sea goes left and you stay right.